I wish you could see it right now. We are scattered all over the globe for Ingold Radio, the podcast presented by The Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com, source for sports, Langley, Darren Millard in the Las Vegas Valley, David Hutchison in his vehicle in the lower mainland, and Kevin Woodley is about to go swimming with sharks as he comes to us for poolside in Hawaii. This is our most dramatic setting in a while. Hutch, you okay in that vehicle? The holiday edition. I'm doing great. I'm in the mobile recording studio. It's fantastic. Spending a little time over in Vancouver on the holiday. And uh, as it is all the time, our schedules aren't easy to coordinate. So I happen to be in the car. So let's do it. I've been wandering around Vancouver looking for the strongest Wi-Fi signal I could find. I think I finally have a sweet one. So let's get her done, boys. Uh, Woody, poolside or ocean? I know which one's safer. Be careful over there. Well, I would have been Oceanside, um, but I needed to stay close enough to the hotel that the the Wi-Fi sort of worked to get us through this session. As the the owner of the uh, business Zoom account here at Ingle, the one who who logs in and can get more than forty minutes. So, um, but I am I am if I lift my computer up, let's just say you can see the ocean. It is uh, Melikalikimaka, boys. It's uh, it's beautiful down here. Hang ten. That's that's my. Coming back. It's not not as fancy as yours, but I just uh, hang 10. Hey, uh, you got to hang out with Thatcher Demko recently uh, for a pro read. Yeah. Hey, um, if you're not an Ingold Premium member, no better time to join. We've talked a lot over the past couple of weeks about uh, the value of pro reads, the value, whether you're a young kid or a beer leaguer or an aspiring junior goaltender or even another pro or another pro coach. Um, list. There's no better way. They all tell us there's no better way to learn to read the game than by watching video and listening in as NHLers do it. And so, uh, the 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 only downside here is the reason we got midseason time with Thatcher as much as we did is because he's rehabbing from a lower body injury and he's going to be a little while. Um, but the bonus for goalies all over the world is they now get to sit in on a video session with him. So, uh, first of many, we spent a good forty minutes with Thatcher and. I got to say, um, obviously, I've spent a lot of time with Thatcher over the past couple of years since he's been with the Vancouver Canucks, just in that locker room on a daily basis, practices, games, morning skates. Um, but it never really broken things down to this degree. And I came away very impressed at the way he reads the game. Uh, there are a lot of sort of elements in there that are very unique um, that we haven't really necessarily heard before. Uh, there are times where he's not necessarily looking for the most dangerous player. He's looking for the most dangerous pockets on the ice. I thought that was really interesting. It's something that he comes back to several times during his pro read segment. So um, if you've ever wanted to sit in on a video session with an NHL goaltender, there's no better place to do it than IngleMag.com with an Ingle Premium subscription. Uh, and we're really excited to bring you a whole bunch of pro reads videos with Thatcher Demko, along with you know, the dozens uh, plus other goalies that we've done sessions with. If you buy a membership now, you get almost three years of archives now, Hutch, like 150 different pro reads with different goalies and yep. and yep. a full year coming in the next in over the next year. And obviously, like I said, that's going to include a lot of Thatcher Demko. And we've got some other big names uh, amongst the sort of young up and coming crop that'll join us here in the next couple of months. And we'll add them to the repertoire as well. Hutch sounds like a great gift uh, for the new year. It sounds like a great gift. I love the first Thatcher Demko pro read that we got up. One of the things I I like is Woody often sort of brings his perspective and to try and pull more out of these guys. And and, and this, this week's play, he 
said, you know, are you trying to play it this way, which is a very conventional way that a lot of coaches talk about. And he says, yeah, no, I actually don't believe in doing that. And here's why. And I think getting those new perspectives from guys is fantastic. So yeah, great opportunity. You can still send a gift. The gift subscriptions are still coming in. We've had a fantastic year. People wanting to share the gift of goaltending with loved ones, with students. Goalie coaches are buying them for some students as a thank you for working with them. Uh, I've seen parents buy them for goalie coaches. And uh, if you do, you just, uh, you're sending them a year subscription. As Woody said, you get the full archives of ingoalmag.com which is over 650 articles and videos uh, published now. If you're interested, but you haven't really checked it out yet, if you head over there, there's multiple links that will take you to sort of why subscribe or the benefits of subscribing. And there's a great page that lays it all out there for you, including links to 10 or 12 unlocked articles. So you can see a pro read, you can see a pro drill, you can get a feel for what all those 650 articles look like. And then uh, I'm sure that you will see the, $36, $37 American is a fantastic deal. And uh, and really, we've underpriced ourselves, but we want to do our best to help out during these times. So uh, grab your subscriptions now, guys, and, and let's uh, get talking about this great episode. I just want to start uh, this statement by saying I have a great life, but I am incredibly envious of you two right now because one, what? no, Hutch, bear with me. You got to go to the hockey shop uh, in person. And I did. Woody, you got to, on our feature interview this week, brought to you by Sensorina, catch up with Andrew Hammond. Uh, just to rub it in a little bit by explaining and give us uh, Cole's notes on both those things. Start with you, Woody, on, on Hammond. And then I want it all about the hockey shop, Bahaj. Well, the Hamburglar, Andrew Hammond, uh, it, you know, it's ironic I knew the retirement had happened and that it was going to be announced. And it's for a, a not very goalie-friendly reason that I knew this. Um, and we'd sort of arranged this interview for once he made it official. I actually reached out to Andrew um, as part of a, a, a feature story on Ovechkin and his pursuit of... That was a uh, great story. Of, of, you know, of sort of second place all time in chasing Kretzky. And, I was trying to talk to the milestone goalies and Andrew gave up um, Ovechkin's 500th goal. And so I sent an email, to be honest, not expecting to hear back from Andrew. Um, I'd heard back from other guys on the list. Uh, you know, James Reimer was 300. Funny enough, James Reimer didn't remember that it was a milestone, but he remembered the goal exactly. It was the first time he'd faced Ovechkin. Anyway, so I reached out to all these guys. I thought Andrew was in Russia. I remember reading that he'd signed in Russia. I didn't realize he'd only played a couple of games and come home. So um, he catch he caught me up sort of on that, uh, that the retirement was coming. And then as soon as he made it official, reached out the next day and we had the interview set up. So Andrew's a guy that we talked about getting on the podcast several times before, uh, you know, especially his last sort of season of pro uh, with the, when he was with Montreal, he came through town. And that was when he had just kind of had the ankle injury and his game looked really good. And, and I thought things were every time, let's, let's be like, and we get into this in the interview, and, and I don't want to give it all away, but every time that guy got a chance in the NHL, almost every time, he posted good numbers. So that's one of the conversations we had here. And he was doing that at the time of the ankle injury. And that, to me, that's sort of the what must be a little bittersweet, um, although he's, he's fully accepted it, is the fact his game looks so good, and then the injury, and he never fully recovered, and now he's retired. But um, a great interview, obviously, about the, the the amazing run he had with the Ottawa Senators, one of the greatest of all time. 
um, the hamburger, pretty much everything Andrew Hammond and his crew, and a lot of stuff that I don't think a lot of people know about as well, uh, is packed into this interview. It was a really good one. He's really gracious with his time, and there are a lot of takeaways for goalies. I can't wait for people to hear about it, and I'm looking forward to the lowdown on walking into that brand new space over at the hockey shop. Oh, it's so exciting. Got over there two days ago. Uh, I've been in Vancouver for about a week and uh, got a chance to stop by there on the way to the rink. And it was hopping, guys. It's uh, I think it was the 27th, so we're into Boxing Week. Uh, the big hockey shop sale is on and the place is filled. Uh, I've never seen that many people in the hockey shop before in the old location. And the new one feels like it's about five times the size of the old location. It it feels like you've walked into this giant open concept space, everything brand new, everything beautifully designed. It's sort of like a candy store for hockey. You just look around and you want to touch and grab and feel and play with everything that you see in the shop. And, uh, and you can just see the energy and you can feel the energy. And of course, wandered around, saw all the great stuff in the different sections there, the new shooting lanes and so on. Uh, but of course, had to go spend time in Cam's Corner. Oh, maybe that's the new name for it. Uh, yeah, check, checked it, checked out Cam's Corner. Um, got to play with uh, some of the gear. Little Hutch tried on a bunch of chesties to see what might be next for him. And uh, we got to talk to a few people around there about goaltending. And, uh, and Cam obviously spent a good, good deal of time with him. Um, checked out those new warrior sticks, the ones that we had, I think it was the last episode, wasn't it? With the, the contoured shaft and, uh, oh, those were exciting. Would love to try one of those. Um, just the, the chance to get in there and talk goaltending with people and try everything new. So exciting. Um, check out the hockey shop in Langley folks. If you get a chance, if you're in the neighborhood and if not, obviously go online and you can find the boxing day sale on there. There's so many great savings. Uh, for you still at the hockey shop, check it out. Uh, the gear segment this week is dealing with the true 20.2 offshore line. Yeah, there's uh, you know, kind of a lot of people again will be like, Hey, haven't you guys done the true 20.2 line? And we have, but this is different. Um, there's a lot of inventory in, and that's the thing. I actually shouldn't say it's different. It's just that all of a sudden there's a whole bunch in there and it's stock, um, gear, but people wonder why, Hey, well, like, why are we all of a sudden? got all this stock, much like the 12.2. And the reason is because True, which is not unexpected, um, has got manufacturing overseas now. And so there's going to be differentiation between the lines. And so instead of built by LaFave, it's designed by LaFave. And this is something we've seen with other companies and it's not a big deal, but it's just sort of Cam wanting to be upfront about why there's all this inventory. Let people know that there's all. If you're if you've been waiting for True Twenty Point Two, a line that was difficult to get, he's now got it in stock. And so we should also have the P the new PX Three line uh, will be coming soon at the hockey shop and thehockeyshop.com. So look for that in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, uh, he got this fresh shipment of Twenty Point Two. So we wanted to sort of go over the features of that line, what differentiates it from Twelve Point Two, and what we're expecting from PX Three. And really interesting. Uh, when PX3 comes out, I'll tell you a story about Freddie Anderson's role behind developing it and the thinner thigh rise. Because uh, when Freddie was here, this is this is like right down to taking video of pucks coming off his pads and sending it to them for running changes in the line. So um, we've got the true 20.2 offshore line available now at the hockey shop and thehockeyshop.com. And we joined Cam, sat down to talk about it. What's different? And I think for a lot of people, the key is what's not different. Uh, with this new line available now. 
Welcome back to the Hockey Shop, source for sports, right at the new location in Langley. I guess pretty soon I don't have to, like, it's just going to be the location. You know, I think we're, we're getting we're, pretty close to, you know, like, coming yeah, up on a month. Like, yeah. this is just it. Oh, it's more than a month. Almost. It's more than a month. Time so. flies when you're having fun, as they say, Cam. And in 34,000 square feet of hockey awesomeness, we are having fun. Here in the corner, we call Goalie Utopia. I think I'm sticking with it, mainly because I can't remember any new words, and it just rolls off the tongue after all these years. We have, and some of you are going to be looking at us right now going, uh, boys, you already did the 20.2. What are you doing? Does Woodley get hit in the head with another puck? Well, he did. He did, but that's beside the point. Um, this is different. Yeah. Much like we talked about with the 12.2, you've got a, first of all, you have stock in. Yeah, we do. You have inventory. We got colors. And one of the reasons that you're starting to see the inventory pop up is that True has, has now has opened its offshore factory. They're producing gear offshore as well as domestically. Correct. And for everyone that screams like why and why, this is the reality. In order to meet the demands, you needed to add offshore capacity. That's what they've done. Um, and I'm telling you, when I look at these pads, 20.2, the 12.2 we did before, like it really is hard to tell the difference between this, which says designed by Lefebvre, and the ones that are actually made in Canada, made by Lefebvre. So, Cam. Walk me through, for those that don't remember, we've done the 12.2 both domestic and offshore. This is now the 20.2 domestic. Some of the highlights of this pad, and we'll get into the blocker and glove really quick, but just some of the highlights and what they get in the offshore line designed by LaFave. I don't know if you can hear that, but they've included their fast glide material on the slide surface of the pad. So worth calling out right off the bat. Um, in terms of for an upgrade, in terms of for your overall sliding and feel wise, you know, very, very similar to speed skin. It's not speed skin. It's different. However, you are going to see it on all of their stock pads with the exception of, I think it was black actually, because I don't think they have black glass glass. It only comes in white. So the black pad doesn't have it on it. Just heads up. Worth noting. Wow. Flip it over. Let's see the back. Overall back of the okay, pad. So see that like you're flipping it over. The people up from the moon. Well, I've got it, you know, so I can be able to do that. Okay, and, there we go. And open it up. Jump on the gun here a little bit. Okay. So we still see their FRS system. The exact same as what you would find on their domestic pad. That's a lot of Velcro. That is a lot of Velcro, but- But way. with a lot of Velcro comes a lot of adjustability. Exactly. Allows you to dial in your fit specifically to what you are looking for. Sure grip knee cradle, um, great for especially that sock knee pad combination. Make sure, again, you're, you're having that stable uh, landing surface. And of course, you can run that knee strap down to the cap if you want. The outer flap on the knee is uh, just sort of not laced stitching, in. laced is the word I'm laced looking for in. there. So easily removable, just exactly. undo the laces and you can take it off if you prefer to wear it that way. A uh, little padding to help stabilize your butterfly down under the shin area. Um, we see the flat. flat. Open boot. Open Soft. boot, flat, get that pad to sit up high. You see Matt Murray wearing his 20.2s in the NHL. See how high that sits on his skate. Correct. Helps with that. Um, Stiff. Let's reiterate the whole stiffness profile though. So the boot soft, fantastic. The pad itself, though, we are very, very, very stiff. If you want flex, that's 12.2. If you want stiff, that's 20.2. And of course, we've got PX3 coming soon. We'll have that in store and sharing that story with you as well. But right now, it's the 20.2 made offshore. Um, we've been through the pad. I think we've got oh, all the highlights. Oh, let's... Yeah, get whipped in the face by the pro laces. And the pro laces are Stop. worth calling out. I like that they have the Our one hybrid with, series. The hybrid series with the lead on it, because to me, elastic all the way to the toe is problematic. We've talked about it before. All stock plus two sizing, worth noting as well. So 33 plus two fits 
how does it fit with that sitting high? So it fits a yeah. little bigger just because it sits up high on the high on the boot. Correct. Yeah. So if you were say a 34 in CCM, what might you be looking at a 33 here? Correct. I, again, depends on what pad you are in. But again, if you're coming from say an, like an E Flex pad or something like that, you probably want to go down in size versus. Okay. So if you're 34 in E Flex, you want to be like a 33 here, for example. Okay. They have a couple different models uh, of the blocker. This is the 595. The bindingless blocker comes stock with the 20.2. Uh, neutral hand position, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm not going to reiterate that a blocker is a blocker, but we've seen this blocker before because it's the exact same as all the other true blockers that are on the wall. Not too much of a change here. Gloves. We saw the 12.2 Offshore series came with a stock 600. This is a stock. Game ready, 590. Great closure right out of the box. I mean, this is like a brand new glove. Kevin's closing it, no problem. So. And I have weak little hands. Yeah, he's got weak little hands. So you're here to hear, folks. So if you want to check them out, you can give us a call at 604-589-8299 or 1-800-567-7790. we got the colors in stock. we got sizes in stock. Come check them out. True. Designed by Lefebvre. 20.2. Available now at the Hockey Shop Store for Sports. I love that. What's not different? is as important as as what's different because it's the same line it's just made at a different spot uh, uh well done uh give it to the freddie anderson uh tidbit well i was gonna save it for px3 but basically freddie for years has worn his pad shorter than sort of his max like he hasn't had it all the way up to his max regulation nhl size and that's because he likes when he drops into the butterfly they close like in a perfect butterfly the tops of the pads even when they're shorter close and he feels more mobile in the shorter pads he feels like when he drops um in longer pads the tops will hit each other and interfere with each other uh and so we went shorter but of course in in the nhl world we don't always drop into a perfect butterfly or sometimes we drop a knee and move laterally and so you're costing yourself coverage so there was a a cognizant effort, perhaps pushed by coaching a goalie coaching staff to see if we can get back up and add those add that extra inch, inch and a bit on each side of the pads for a little extra coverage. Well, how do you do that without having the pads interfere? You need them to be thinner at the top of the thigh rise. And so when we see the PX3 line, if you've seen it online, if you see it um, you know, on social media, and we'll have it, like I said, at the hockey shop soon, you'll notice that there's that thinner upper thigh rise. But the first versions of it, thin meant floppy. And so he felt like pucks were hitting it and it was like the trap door. It was hitting the top of the thigh rise and it was bending back and allowing pucks to get through. So he actually took a video camera out and had pucks shot off the pads and he was filming to see that, you know, how much that top of the thigh rise was flexing. And so then the next iteration and the one that you'll see available um, at launch, they reinforced the top of it, I believe, with a, a... layer or layers of carbon fiber to make it carbon fiber to make it that much stiffer. So um, Freddie Anderson very much playing an active role. It seems at least from conversations with him and, and when he came through with Carolina uh, in what we see as a finished product of the true PX3 pet. Bit of a lesson there guys for when people are out shopping. I think most of the companies in their new products have, have dealt with this, but if you're shopping for something used uh, or even if you're looking new, if you're, Desire is to have the lightest pad possible. One of the only ways you can go lighter is to go with a foam that is not as stiff and strong and is a little bit more flexible. So you grab the top of that pad. If you found something super, super light, it might be a little bit too flexible. So especially in some of the older stuff, if you go and buy it, um, just understand that there is a trade-off 
when you're going for the lightest pad uh, possible. Freddie's got a little Ed Belfour, Ryan Miller uh, going on uh, with taking gear to a next level and researching it, Woody? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, he's definitely a guy who likes things to feel a certain way. And I like that. I like that he knows what he wants out of his equipment and he's willing to make adjustments to it or have his manufacturers make adjustments to it to get it there. I mean, we when he was in the Bauer pads, um, you know, there were sets there. He wanted it to be a little shorter than, than, than what his max size was. And I think there was a set there that actually got shipped out uh, and sort of, for lack of a better term, cut down at the top of the thigh rise and then stitched back up so nobody could tell. So uh, I, I love that he understands why his gear works and how it works for him. I think there are a lot of people that wonder why you'd ever reduce the height of your pads, but I'll never forget being in the Maple Leafs dressing room and him doing carpet flies and showing me how, hey, like it doesn't matter. Like, look at my butterfly. When I drop, the pads seal perfectly. I don't need the extra size. And he just felt that much more comfortable going to the ice um, with a slightly shorter pad. Carpet flies. I've not heard that before. <laughs> Is that a, a language with the, with the kids these days, Hutch? Um, I don't know. I've, I've heard that one before. It's something you try over in the hockey shop when you're trying on your gear. So you just gotta, when he gotta go with it, Darren, gotta be a cool dude. When now he came to get some carpet in there. It's all beautiful hardwood now. So he needs, he needs a section just for carpet flies, but actually believe me, there's some, Oh, now they're woody flies. There, uh, there's some, Ooh, I like that. There's some really good stuff coming in terms of being able to see yourself dropping to the ice and what your profile is in, in the, the net coming very soon to the hockey shop location out there in Langley. They're working on it. It's it's going to be neat when it comes. You'll be able to see yourself and take photos of yourself in your gear in a net to see how you look and how much of it you fill up. It's it's a pretty oh. cool concept by Cam, but it's, it's well, in the that works. that reminds me of something. That reminds me of something. What? You're not sure, Darren? I thought you guys were coming here for the road trip. Now I might be coming up there. <laughs> well, that would be nice. No, the chance to see how you fill the net and take up space. How well, else can you do that? Go down Sense Arena. Sense Arena, absolutely. One of those great features of Sense Arena is that you can uh, take a look at yourself after plays and see exactly how you're filling the net, exactly how you uh, made a particular save. Um, they've even got a feature that uh, allows you to mess around and they tell you how well you're filling the space. They actually give you um, a number to talk about how your box control is working. Um, really cool. I don't know if you guys knew there's a new sense arena out. What? There is a new release of sense arena out just came out, just got the notice, uh, maybe a week or 10 days ago. And finally the NHL and PHF shooters are in sense arena. So if you want to get in there and face real NHL, real PHF pro guys, pro girls, you can do that now. And uh, what an awesome feature that they've added in there. But, so of course, everybody's super excited about that. Why wouldn't you? Um, the other thing that's new, one, if you already have the Oculus headset, you can get on there and do a seven-day trial with Sense Arena before you have to make any commitment to pay. So there's a chance to get in there and give it a go. If you've been worried about making the commitment, now's your chance. They also have an intro version available. So if you want to get in there, you're avail you can get a subset of the drills. You can get all the cognitive drills. You can get some training stuff for only $29 a month. So it's not the full, full package. I don't think you get the video drills, but if you're 
not sure about making a full commitment and you already have the Oculus headset, maybe Santa left one under the tree, 29 bucks a month, great chance to try out Sensorina and see what it's really like before you make that full $49 a month commitment um, for the full package, all the drills, the NHL shooters, the PHF shooters. Um, you know, we think it's one of the best training tools out there, Darren. Now it's gotten even better. And that's one of the great things about Sense Arena. There's new releases coming all the time. Oh, and I almost forgot. Now, if you're in the big arena in Sense Arena doing your training, it's a full house filled with fans cheering for you. Pretty cool experience. Do they uh, boo you if you let it in? Like, can you get like the full out Bronx cheer experience too? I I've been in Hawaii, so uh, I haven't had a chance to test this out. I wasn't going to risk my Oculus by bringing it down here. It would have been some cool, some cool background shots of people looking at me. Even beach yeah, shots. Would, yeah, people would have been looking at me pretty weird if I was stopping pucks on the beach. But uh, will they boo you? And second, so you're telling me I can face NHL shooters without having to risk the loss of a tooth? Exactly. Exactly. You can get you can get scored on in the comfort of your own home, Woody. Well, I mean, that happens anyways with the old version, but didn't take NHL shooters to do that. Not many people get that opportunity. Andrew Hammond did. Uh, he has uh, since just recently retired. But uh, this is a player that will forever be linked uh, to the Ottawa Senators. And in 15 years, they're going to have alumni back, and he is going to still receive the loudest cheer. And that'll be in comparison to some of the franchise all-time greats because of that run that Andrew Hammond had. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, and we talk about it, we get into it, we get into the the card from McDonald's, we get into what it was like being in that zone, um, all kinds of great stuff from you know what is arguably one of the greatest runs in NHL history over, this, over that sample. Um, like just incredible, the run he came on. But there's so much more to the Andrew Hammond story, and that's why we wanted to have him on as a guest. Like, this is a guy who, you know, playing junior in the BCHL, wasn't even sure he would get a college scholarship. Forget pro hockey. And then when he did get to college, he chose a program on purpose. He'll tell you why. That when he when he got there, looked like it might be its last year because it gave him an opportunity to play. And as college was winding down, the idea of pro hockey wasn't necessary. Like, he didn't know there'd be pro opportunities. And then he goes on this run. And, but as usual, it's, it's not lucky. It's not a straight path. It's all about hard work. It's about perfecting your craft. It's about finding, you know, different voices, different, like there's just so much to the Andrew Hammond story um, beyond that incredible run. That's why we wanted to make sure we had him on the podcast so we could get into all those different elements. And he did not disappoint. Another chapter in the Andrew Hammond story. Our feature interview brought to you by Sensorina, Sensorina VR. Really excited to welcome to the Ingo Radio Podcast for the first time. I tried to make it happen a few times over the years, but the schedules never aligned. I kind of wish it was under different circumstances, but we talked a little bit last week, and it sounds like you're at peace with the decision. Andrew Hammond, um, fresh off the retirement announcement, maybe just for starters, I wanted, there's so many places I want to take this, but for starters, just catch us up. We, everybody saw the announcement on Twitter, talked about the ankle. Um, and the injury and trying it out this year. Just sort of give us the rundown on, on you know, where the body's at and, and what ultimately led you to this decision at this point. So I, I think now being in this position, it's a lot different for me. Um, I, I always kind of had a, maybe a little bit of a fear in the back of my head that whenever I was done, what, what would the body look like if it was a bad knee injury or something? Just 
nothing's really guaranteed about how you're going to kind of walk away from the game. And obviously for me, I had the injury and I was with Montreal last year. It happened in the game in Calgary where my ankle got twisted, um, kind of where they, they drill the pegs in for the post, my escape blade, I went down in a reverse and the toe of my blade got stuck under the post. So, um, felt a pop. And ever since then, I've seen a number of doctors. I've gotten surgery. I've done rehab of, uh, really it's i guess the the wits end of of options but um with that said my day-to-day life and and quality of life is is great it's really just unable to do a a butterfly which in the in the modern day game is a little bit of an issue but um maybe if i was playing in the 80s or something i could still get away with it but um yeah it's just something i've been i've battled that for a little while and uh the one thing i found i mean everyone plays through bumps and bruises and injuries and stuff but I think it had just become too much where um, as much as I, I was trying to will it to happen, the, uh, I guess what I was producing on the ice wasn't making it worth it anymore. Frustrating to go through that process in terms of the ankle injury. And maybe is it more so because when I talked to you in Montreal, when you came through with Montreal, you were just starting to rehab. And we mm-hmm. talked a little bit just informally in the hallway, like really liked where your game was at, really liked where, where things looked like they were headed for you. And it looked like you were really comfortable with your game. Does it, does it make it more frustrating because you would, you know, you, you were, you were back in the NHL and, and it yeah. looked like playing really well. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I felt like, um, for a long time, my, my game was, there's a variety of reasons, but I always felt like my game was a little bit more suited to the NHL. Maybe it's because um, I felt like I had a, a good book on a lot of players and understand, understood what they, what they wanted to do. And I think a lot of how I read the game and things like that maybe helped a little bit more where um, in the American Hockey League, it's players from all over and a lot of people that maybe you haven't heard of before or know what kind of player they are. And it, basically people might not have a, might as well not have a name bar or number on the back because, when you're in the middle of the game, you don't really know, but when number eight on the Washington Capitals is coming down, you know exactly who that is. So it was a little bit different. You understand tendencies, maybe a little bit more, but I think also just how fast the game is, is it's just so reactive and you're not trying to look too far ahead and you're just trying to, I guess, give yourself a chance. Interesting you say that. And and certainly not the first time I've heard it over the years from goalies. As much as people from the outside, it sounds absurd to them especially for guys who read the game so well, the NHL in some ways, maybe easier is the wrong term, just better suits their their style a little bit. It sounds like that was your experience. The AHL can be a little more well, scrambly and unpredictable. Well, I think what you have to remember too is everyone in the NHL, they're, they're the best players in the world. Um, if you think the game of hockey at a, at a fairly high level and understand what the right play is, um, you can usually bank on those players making the right play where um, the American Hockey League, there's a ton of great players, but there's a lot of younger players who are still learning that. And I always felt like um, par- part of my play in the NHL was based around, well, what would what would the smartest play be in this situation? And you can read it off players, whether it's off uh, two-on-one or three-on-two or whatever. Um, you can kind of figure out where the puck will probably end up because they're nine times out of ten going to make the right play. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting how that works. Um Reading the game as a skill set, because it's something we, we talk a lot, of, a lot at Ingle. We, we have our pro reads that we try and sort of help kids with that process. Um, where does it come from for you? Is it just experience and innate? Or were there things you did to 
developed that, whether it was video or was there a way that you became so confident in the way you read the game at the highest level? Um, I'd say there's a couple turning points for me. Uh, when you look back at my game throughout college and junior, where I was, I was a lot more aggressive on those kind of states of point shot and you're scrambling to find the rebound and stuff. I was always finding myself going out towards the puck. Um, and Rick Wamsley, my first year in Ottawa, really reinforced the, the concept of protecting the net. And that's basically just, um, in some ways, it could be interpreted as angle before depth. For others, it's just trying to get to the middle of your net, whether that's on the goal line and being deep. Um, you're better off there than being three feet outside your crease and the guy passes it back door. You're not going to give yourself a chance. So although you would like to be out taking down the angle at all times, there's certain instances where it's good to just kind of try and protect that net and get to the middle because especially at the higher levels, guys have virtually no time with the puck on their stick. They're just firing it. Are they better at putting it into corners? Yes. But I would say again, probably 80% of the time, they're just going to shoot it towards the net and hope that it finds a corner or something, but there's a good chance that it might just hit you in the stomach or something as well. That aggression that you you mentioned playing with in college, and of course, Bowling Green University, four years there, um, after playing in the BCHL here in our backyard, uh, the Ingle backyard, um, for a couple of, I guess, three seasons. Was that just a function of, because I'm thinking like in, you know, it's not that long ago, and yet NCAA hockey was a little different back then. I think it's become a little more NHL-like to a certain extent, but it was a little more of a one-shot league at times. You could be aggressive. We saw a lot of goalies have yeah. to make those adjustments coming over from college to pro. I think as much as it maybe doesn't have the speed that the pro game does, um, the way teams defend and forecheck, I mean, you basically have someone on you at all times there. And whether it's the atmospheres in some of the buildings where it feels like guys are all over you or the fans are all over you, it feels like the ice is a little bit smaller. And um, with with the college, I don't know if I would call it a, a one save league, but um, it feels like guys truly defend as hard as they can. and it could be a product of you're playing 36 games, maybe 40 games a year. You have more energy and you're younger and all that stuff, but um, it's definitely a different game and you just don't have as much time and space as you do, um, especially in, in the in the NHL where there's some guys on the half wall, they want you to go right at them. And in college, every time you're taught to go right after the guy, whereas in the pro level, you're taught sometimes if it's Patrick Kane, just let him hang out there. He can't do anything from there. Or a guy behind the net, they can't score from back there, but um, in college, it's a lot more um, get on your guy as quick as possible. Let's rewind it a little bit because we started with obviously I want to catch up on the retirement announcement, and but I, I want to go back to where it started for you. Like where did how did Andrew Hammond be, how did how did you become a goaltender? So like most Canadian kids, uh, at least on the West Coast, the, the driveway was kind of where it started. But my my first real memory was, was the '94 Cup run with the Canucks and Kirk McLean. I still remember the Jeff Brown to Pavel Bure for the breakaway winning goal. And um, that's kind of my first memory. But after that, I was the youngest kid on the cul-de-sac and older brother, older kids in the neighborhood. And as the youngest, I got forced kind of between the pipes then. And between those two things, it kind of created this uh, desire to be a goalie. And like anyone, any young kid, you find an idol in different shapes and forms. Some kids, it's Superman. For me, it was all the goalies coming through. And I think I went to one Canucks practice at uh, the old Britannia. I don't know, even know if it's still called there, but it was the same thing where it just seemed like the coolest thing ever to me. And the weird part is that I never really was a full-time goalie until I think 12 or 13. 
Um, I bounced around between the two, but the semi and minor hockey where I played, they, they stopped providing gear for the goalies right around age 12, age 13. And that's why my parents said that they, that I had to make a decision one or the other, they weren't going to buy both sets of gear. And I chose goalie and that's kind of when I started playing rep hockey and all that stuff. And everything else since then has kind of just happened in unique, different ways. And I guess what would be the conventional path for a lot of people. Well, it usually starts, it's one of two things, right? It's either the older brother and you got to go in net or it's the gear, like an obsession mm-hmm. with one of the, like, those are the two most common origin stories we hear. I, I, I was a, I was a big gearhead when I was younger. Um, I, I forget there was a, a forum and message boards. It might've been the old Miller hockey website or something where they talked about all the new gear and I was all over that as a kid. And my first set of pads, I still remember that I, that I had owned was the Coho 570s and I slept in them that night and I woke up, I think two or three in the morning. I couldn't feel my legs cause they were just stiff as a brick, but that's all the, the funny stuff. And I think that like the purchase from my parents side of things, they realized how much that meant to me that I'm sleeping in them the first night I get them. So it was, uh, I don't know if it was the gear or the, the play, but something definitely uh, chose me rather than me choosing goalie. Well, I think, yeah, I'm trying to think of the, I think it's the goalie store bulletin board was probably the, yeah, the one you were on. I and that, was. and I, ironically, I think, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was uh, started by Paul Fricker, who was one of the local coaches here who now coaches the Vancouver Giants as a goalie okay, coach. Well, yeah. No, I wore Miller growing up, so that would make sense. And they used to have the, I don't know if it was the store or factory or both out of, uh, it used to be called Great Pacific Form, I think, back yep. then, but I don't know, right under the Alex Fraser. Yep, and that's where I still play beer, league, no. play beer league. So it's 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 yep. still there. Um, now it's funny you mentioned uh, playing out, and you know, twelve or thirteen being a later age. And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, it is. And yet we've heard from a lot of guys that those early years, maybe not being too goalie specific, looking back on it can be a benefit. Do you do you feel that way a little bit? The fact that especially when we talk about reading the game, that you you played as a forward, you played as you know yeah. you were out and sort of the patterns that everyone tries to connect as a goaltender, you were part of them. Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. And then also, um, I mean, one of the big hot topics these days are kids playing different sports. I played soccer, I played baseball. And I think all of that's super important. And I would say more important than being goalie specific at a young age, but particularly being a defenseman or forward in minor hockey and learning basic skating and how to think the game at some level, obviously it's different and, changes as you get up or get older but um i would always play roller hockey with my friends after school never in that and it was always one of those things where you're kind of i mean the i would say the one drill that i have found most effective in my career especially when things are going south and the net feels like it's a soccer net is just putting dog leashes kind of on the corners of the net to to reinstill how small the net is and for me, that's something that kind of dials back in. This job can seem really hard at times, but at the end of the day, there's not really much room where they can beat you. And as I talk about being a forward or defense, but you kind of learn those situations where when you're certain places in the on the ice, you know there's only certain spots where you can beat the goalie and that type of thing. And all of that, you kind of learn without even really thinking about it. Um, and then when you're on the flip side and you're in that, you kind of start processing that. Well, I've been in that position. I know he can't really shoot here or shoot there. It's got to go here. And that all kind of fits into that reading the game type of thing. Oh, I love that. And I'm, now I got to ask, because I'm curious, first time the dog leashes came out, like where where did you have that initial exposure to that? Um, I'm trying to remember specifically. I I can't exactly, but I would 
it, it would have either had to been, I think, Pasco Valena would have, would have brought them out at some point, or we used to do a a, a pro goalie camp in Madison, Wisconsin, with and, Mike and Ballin, one of those guys, Mike Ballin, yeah, yeah, Mike group, Ballin yep, and a yep. lot of other guys. It, it may have been there, but um, the the one year I was in Rochester, we got back into it a little bit, and it, it's honestly mind boggling. I think they're not as cheap as they should be, but I think they're probably thirty bucks or so, and you get the uh, retractable ones and you can basically pull them right to where the puck is. And you can see all the trajectory, everything as far as where you can be beat. And if you're no deeper, no further out than just the top of the crease, you maybe have three inches on either side of your blocker or glove. And you just realize how small the net is. And I think that combined with one practice in the American league, Rick Wamsley told me just not to go down and watch how many pucks I stopped. And between those two things, it kind of clicks in your head. You want to make the, the job so hard, but really it, it's not as difficult as you think when you're just facing a shot square on. And oftentimes when either it's goalies dropping too early or something along those lines that you can actually make it much harder on yourself than it needs to be. Well, I was curious about the dog leashes just because obviously we talk now a lot about like the Swedes talk about it in terms of box control. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've, But I've run into goalies over the years that learned it in different ways at different times and some of them quite early. I remember Connor Hellebuck saying when he was a kid, they used to have, you know, the mini nets, USA Hockey's mini nets, and they would put those out in front of them. But at the end of the day, however you learned it, whenever you learned it, I think you're right. Like, we tend mm-hmm. to think of this giant six by four behind us, and the reality, yeah. in order to get into it, it has to beat us through a much smaller area out in front. And that concept can be tough for goalies yeah. to feel. It sounds like you found a way to feel it and remember it. Yeah, and that goes back a little bit to, um, I mean, there's so many different ways it gets taught. I've heard belly button over puck or nose over puck and different things and as long as you're centered on the puck or centered on your ankle and all that it it, it goes both ways because if you've ever shot on a goalie you think oh man there's no room but then when you're on the other side of it and you're standing in front of the net you're like this guy's got a lot of room to shoot at so it kind of blends those two concepts where it makes uh you meet in a little meet in the middle a little bit but um yeah i think i think box control is um great for young goalies just to understand the concept and goes back to what I said with Bowling Green, how I used to chase out and think I had to go get stuff. But the more you sit back, you realize there's really not that much room um, when you're kind of just more protecting the net a little bit. So we talked a little bit about Bowling, uh, bowling Green, and, and I want to go back to the Vernon Vipers days. By the way, Curtis Lazar says hello, teammate in Ottawa. We'll get to that in a bit. But he remembers you as a guy who grew up in the Okanagan. He remembers watching you when you were a member of the Vernon Vipers. What was your experience like? We talked about goalie coaches and evolution. Um, starting as a full-time goalie at 12 or 13 here in semi-ammo minor hockey. Where did goalie coaching, where did that side of the thing enter the equation for you? Um, did you have one in Vernon at the time and into Bowling Green? Did Was that something where there were different voices helping you take these strides as a goaltender or was, until, or was it maybe not until you turned pro? Because I know, you know we're talking about an era where not every team yeah. had a goalie coach like they do today. Yeah, no, it's the, the transition has been... Um, great to see um but no it it always it wasn't always like this and back back with vernon um i I started with the three eagles and that didn't really work out and i'd kind of been at a crossroads in my hockey career before that and i had kind of sat down with uh pasco and, and sean murray and talked to them a little bit about what i wanted to do with my hockey career if this was it and they were two people who they had kind of started, they had run semi-ammo minor hockey goalie schools back as young as when I was, I think, eight or nine, and I was borrowing the gear. And 
I remember Sean telling me, well, he didn't tell me, but he basically inferred to my mom that it might not be worth my time almost because I was so bad. So it's funny because we, we stuck together and both of them I worked with all throughout um, minor hockey and junior and everything. And even when I was at Bowling Green, I'd go back and back home in the summers and see them and work with them. But um, the the Vernon thing, where there's a goalie coach there, Sean Mathiel, who was an ex-pro, and we worked on a lot of different things. He changed some things in my game. And um, that summer before my last year was kind of, I made a decision where if if I wasn't going to get a scholarship, it wasn't because I wasn't prepared. And that's kind of been the, I guess the one piece of advice or the thing I've leaned on the most throughout my whole career is just how important preparation is. Um, but yeah, I know there's been goalie coaches I'm going kind of all over the place right now, but there's been goalie coaches all over and at Bowling Green, we had guys helping out all the time. And uh, my first year pro though, Rick Wamsley was the only goalie coach in the whole Ottawa organization. And that's changed now where basically every team in the American league and NHL, as you know, they kind of have two guys, but back then it was, you work with him maybe once, once a month your first year he'd come down for a week be gone with ottawa for three weeks and that's kind of how that worked the first year you mentioned preparation and it sounds like there's a good lesson there um can can you expand on a little bit because i mean the one thing with this podcast is we get a lot of like parents and kids listening often together we hear a lot on the way to the rink they listen to it together so you know for that young kid that feels like they want to make sure they're giving this their best at this point what did preparation entail for you at that age and heading into junior and in the transition to college? What did making sure you were prepared mean compared to maybe what you were doing before? So for me, um, what the preparation meant was, well, well, A, that year going in my last year of the BCHL, when I was, my only goal was really to get a, a scholarship was uh, um, we had a good team. We wanted to win the World Bank Cup. We wanted to win the BCHL. We had lofty goals. Um, I knew if I were showing up every day and I was thinking, oh, why don't I have a scholarship? Why don't I have a scholarship? And all this, it, it would wear on me. It would take away from my play. So my only goal that year was to win the RBC and get into the playoffs and play really well. And I figured if I did that, the rest would kind of take care of itself. So for me, it was just work habits and practice, um, I guess, diet and fitness and all that stuff. That was something that I hadn't really taken um an understanding of until that point um and then even the, like as we got closer and we did reach that goal of eventually winning and throughout that the the other goal kind of took care of itself but um I'll fast forward a little bit in that where it was uh when I was starting before the run in Ottawa I had every reason to not have confidence going in and all that but for the previous month before I started every day at practice I'd be the first guy on last guy off I'd be in the gym. I'd, I'd, in the gym, I'd be doing everything. So at that point, when it actually became my turn or my opportunity, I had the confidence and self belief built in that, you know what? Whether this goes well, it goes bad. I've done everything I can to this point to give my to put myself in the best position going forward. And when you do that, you have the opportunity to give yourself all the confidence in the world. But no coach, no teammate can give you confidence. It's really just something a goalie has to find themselves and for me that's how i find confidence and how i found confidence throughout my career was preparation and whether that's in between games or whatever because there's certain times where you just know i've done everything since last game to get ready to play well or different things like that but for me that's what preparation was was putting myself in a good position to know that i could have success 
We hear that a lot in academics, right? Like, like you're not nervous about a test exactly. if, you, if you know you're prepared if for you've it. Studied, if, if you've studied, it's a lot different than if you show up and you haven't studied or something like that. It's, it's the exact same concept. And honestly, I think it's so overlooked sometimes. It's just how much you can truly give yourself confidence by doing the right things. Well, you, you mentioned uh, that final season with Vernon and the Royal Bank Cup. You guys win it. Two nothing shout out in the, in, in the final, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, no, you're correct. And like, had the scholarship been locked up at that point or walk me through like, was college, and you said it was a goal. Did you go yeah. into that tournament by the end knowing you had it locked up or were you still waiting? Because that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, um, it's kind of a funny story. So, um, well, we like had, those. Yeah. So I think it was maybe January-ish. And at the time, one of the assistant coaches at Bowling Green was Dennis Williams, who's now the head coach of the Canadian World Junior Team this year. So. Um, he was on a scouting trip and we just happened to play the Swedish under 17 or under 18 team in an exhibition game on a Tuesday night. And I think his flight got delayed or something. So he came and watched the game. I played half the game. And from that point on, I was kind of on the radar a little bit. I think maybe a month later they'd offered me a scholarship and I committed on a Sunday and Monday afternoon, Bowling Green announced they were getting rid of the program. So I had about, 18, 12 hours where I was super happy that I got the scholarship. And then they said that they're getting rid of the program. So a little nerve wracking. I had talked to some other schools, but ultimately Bowling Green, um, I guess, up their offer a little bit and gave me a little bit more of a scholarship. And the, the silver lining for me was that I was going to be given an opportunity in my freshman year to play. And I knew that if things did go south of the school, I could at least transfer to another school without losing a year of eligibility or sitting out given the situation they were in. Uh, the great news is program got back on steady footing and alumni rallied around and it's in uh, better shape than it ever was back then. And now they're doing a lot better. Now, as you go through your four years at Bowling Green, and I know some of that, I was trying to think, I was trying to do my math in my head on whether some of the guys I know that, that obviously we had Kevin BX here with the Canucks, a proud alumni, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I think of Jordan Sigalette. Uh, and even the social media legend Kane Van Gate was once a third goaltender at Bowling Green. But I'm trying to—I I couldn't quite do the math in my head whether that whether that all coincided with your time there. One thing I do know beyond your game and the evolution of it, I know that as much as like the nickname started mm -hmm. at Bowling Green. Can you walk me through the origins of that? And like, obviously, it became yeah. a huge, huge thing in Ottawa. Was it something you liked? minded hated when it first started or you because as obviously it, it goes the roots of it are stealing games and something you did a lot at bowling green yeah um well not my first year that's, that's a different story <laughs> but uh no my first year i think the team won four or five games i won zero and they, yeah but i'm, I, I'm I was, guessing if they announced they were canceling the program that there were probably quite a few departures and maybe that first yeah. year team was not yep quite no, um, up to exactly right. yeah well that dennis williams the, the coach is uh i think he was 28 at the time as a head coach so i think that shows where we were at and great everything he's gone on and had a heck of a coaching career now but yeah i think i was 0 12 and 2 and they still started me the first game of playoffs so i think that spoke to where the team was at and their chances but um yeah it's it's where the nickname started um my first year playing rebound sure everyone knows that game and one of the guys basically just started joking like the burglar kind of thing and then some guy was like the hand burglar and then 
the next year we're coming up with a design for my mask and someone's like, you should put it on your helmet. But the first year pro I had it on my helmet too, and no one noticed. So it wasn't until, um, like that, that's not something I was ever really called in the locker room. It was more just a funny thing to put on the helmet. And then, uh, when the run in Ottawa started, that's really the first. And since then, I guess the time that the Hamburglar was what became famous. Okay. And so how the opportunity presents itself in Ottawa, um, sounds like late in your final season at Bowling Green, like was pro hockey, you talked about the final year of, of junior yeah. a, you know, and, and, and so, make wanting yeah. NCAA to be a goal. At what point does pro hockey become something that's serious for you and, and a serious consideration? Um, my, my second year I had gotten shoulder surgery, but I was supposed to go to rookie camp with the Capitals. Um, and then my junior year, my third year, I went to Blackhawks development camp. And that was kind of the first time that I started thinking maybe I remember I had a good camp at the Blackhawks, but I was older. I didn't finish school until 25. So I didn't really think anything was realistic, but um, my junior year, I, well, this is the story in, in hindsight. At the time, I didn't know any of this. And I told my agent at the time, whatever happens, don't don't keep me in the loop. We'll just figure it out at the end. Um, kind of like how I said with the, the Royal Bank Cup and those other things. If if I'm doing the right things with the team, those other things will take care of itself. And we had played a game in the CCHA semifinals um, against Michigan. And we had a similar team to my first year, so we weren't great. But um, I think I had... 62 or 63 saves or something and uh pierre dorian was there watching and scouting and he took note of me and i didn't know anything about them having interest and uh senior year we're playing in lake state old hotel you got to crack the windows open in the middle of winter because your room's 100 degrees and uh i hear this guy talking outside on the on his cell phone outside on the street and i can tell he's talking about some players and talking about an agent he's mentioning i think it was like colin greening and uh, Jesse or Brad Winchester, I forget the two pre-agent signings that Ottawa had, and they were talking about two Lake State players. And I tell the the goalie partner on my team, we, was, we shared rooms then. I told him about uh, what was going on, and he said, oh, that's interesting. He knew because his dad was at the game the previous weekend that Ottawa had basically their whole staff there watching me and all this stuff, and that they were there watching me again. So I had no idea that they you're, were actually talking. You were about just me. oblivious. Yeah, I was just oblivious, and then. Um, we lose the next round to Notre Dame and uh, kids program so I won't go to the whole story but um, we thought our careers were hockey careers could be over I didn't know ECHL, AHL Southern Pro League, NHL I, I truly had no idea I had talked to I think one team in person that year it wasn't Ottawa and then um, yeah my agent called me the next day and basically said here's the deal and um, I, I honestly couldn't believe it. Is there a lesson there? You know, like you talked about, you know, the fact you the ability to sort of block everything out and not be having those conversations in a position that has enough pressure on it in, you know, just by the nature of the position mm -hmm. to, to allow you to focus on doing your job and, and letting everything else take care of itself. If you were, if you knew they were there, if you knew they were all watching, if would that have just yeah. added unnecessary pressure? It, it could have. Um, one thing I think might be good for young goaltenders, um, that I always, I became OCD about it almost like during a game, I'm basically repeating this phrase in my head at all times. And it's next shot, next save, next stop. So I'm, 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 it, it was 
my way of staying in the moment and worrying about the next shot and not worrying about whether it was a bad goal I just let and a big save. And I think that kind of lends itself to becoming more of an even keel goalie. And then also if distractions were happening in the rink or you knew someone was there or anything like that, it allowed you to kind of move your focus from um, the one area back to where it should be. And that's on the, the puck and the next shot, the next save, and hopefully the next stop. Well, it's interesting because next shot, next save is a mentality that all goalies stripe or I always make the comparison to golf, right? Like that mm-hmm. ability to stay in the moment is as soon as we're in the past or the, or looking at the future, we're in trouble. And, yeah. but it's, it's the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do quite often. Yeah. It sounds like maybe one way to do it is just not stop saying it. Yeah. And you honestly, I, as I said, I became OCD about it. I, I think like, I love golf. Um, I think there's so many similarities between goaltending and golf and all of a sudden one day you're seemingly slicing it for no reason. It's the same thing. All of a sudden you're not catching something clean. It feels like everything's the exact same, but for whatever reason, it's just a little bit different. Um, the more advanced you get in the game, you're able to figure out how to get back to, I guess your base or the normal things. And I remember I was watching a game back in Hockey in Canada a while ago. And I think it was Blaine Rollison said, you know, for, NHL goalies, it's not really a technical thing. You kind of know how to get back to your baseline. It's all about just feeling good. And I think that's the same thing with pro golfers too. It's not not a whole lot different. And I think if you can build a base and a structure within your game as a young goalie, um, always being able to kind of go back to it when things aren't going well, it really helps. What was yours? What were the things that you went back to? What was the foundational <laughs> piece for you if things started to drift? What did you come back to first? You talked about it. The dog leashes is one in certain drills. What yeah. was the, you know, beyond next, because some guys, you said next next shot, next save. Some guys also yeah. have mantras about posture or positioning that they try and, and it'll change over time. But what was that foundation that you came back to? Um, off the top of my head, I honestly, I, I can't remember everything. I used to, as simple as having a, a note thing on my, on my phone that I would just look at and it, was kind of, I would say, half visual, visualization and half um, just kind of keeping my mind dialed into the right things. But um, usually it was toes on crease line, um, eyes first, feet second. Um, one thing that I, I kind of got into later in my career that became, I think, helpful for me was trying to keep my, my head on the same plane. And what I mean by that is if you picture the, yeah, if you picture the crossbar, it's whatever relation your head is to the crossbar it basically stays there whether you're dropping moving laterally or whatever and the reason for that was that um if you've ever played catch with a football or anything like that it's pretty easy to catch the ball when you're standing still but as soon as you start jumping it becomes a little bit more difficult it's the same thing with the first baseman and as i said i've played other sports and you get taught to kind of get set before the ball gets to you at first base and part of that is because it's easier to track the ball. And so the more tracking became something people talked about. I don't know if I was even necessarily taught it, but it was just something that I kind of put the two different ideas together and thought, okay, well, this makes more sense. And the more I, I focused on that, it felt like uh, tracking pucks became a lot easier. What was the first couple of years of pro? Um, what was the biggest adjustment for you? You talked about um, you know, working with Whammer and some of the, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of positioning and things like that. You know, you got a you got a stint in the first year. I think if I remember correctly, it was Craig Anderson's second child, which 
this is obviously yeah, a while, a while. I, I don't remember the i don't remember what it was i just remember leonard was the guy who started and it was against the wings and as I, i've said a, a few times this week talking to different people but if that would have been the only time i played it would have been great but no it was my, my first my first game pro um norfolk in the american league and they had three five on three goals in the first period. It was four nothing after the first, and I was out of there. So that was a warm welcome to the American League. But uh, hey, welcome in, kid. Five on three galore. Yeah, yeah, three five on three goals. So that was great. But um, no, it was it, the first. It, it's actually very interesting to look back on, and I think if I, I've spoken to different goalie partners throughout the years that have been rookies in the American League and stuff. If you were to divide my stats between the start of the season and Christmas and then from Christmas on, it was like an 880 save percentage the first half of the season, then like a 930 the second half. And all that was was finding that adjustment. And like when I talked about a Bowling Green, how aggressive I would get, I finally started seeing those lessons that were being uh, pushed on me as far as protecting it, being a little bit more patient, holding my feet. Once I started um, putting those lessons into action, that's when I started having success and the game started seeming so much easier to me. And I had more time all of a sudden and you're making saves that used to look hard. And now all of a sudden they look easy and all of that stuff just started to kind of come together to me and or for me. And I started playing more. I got in a rhythm and um, I played a lot of games down the stretch. And the, the end of the second year, I moved into that summer feeling really good about my game and uh, where I could take things. Interesting. You say that because you talked about how well you read the game and first half, second half, like statistically around the league for years, the first half of the season is looser defensively. It's why I keep yeah. seeing all this noise about save percentage being at a 15-year low at the quarter point this year. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter what it is at the quarter point because it always goes up as teams sort of, you know, it's not like just about the defense getting better, but it becomes more predictable. Guys understand the system and they go where they're supposed to yeah. go. And I'm guessing as a goalie, especially one that relied or read the game yeah. so well, that might have maybe played a role in that. No, I think that was a big part of it. And then also um, reading the game in college and reading the game in, in the pro level are two different beasts. And all of it was just an adjustment. And um, I think when you see, um, you see a lot of fans sometimes get eager for the young goalie prospect to hurry up and play in the NHL and stuff. And, I think there's so much value in de developing at a, a slower rate. And ultimately when, when they're ready, they're ready. And um, I mean, you've seen, you've, there's so many examples now throughout uh, the last 10, 20 years of guys that played three years in the American league or guys that played half a season right into the NHL and all that stuff. And there's varying levels of success with both. And I think it really just kind of depends on the, on the goalie itself. Okay, so fast forward to the run, obviously, 14-15, you get that call up. You Did you know you were going to stick? I mean, just because like it's a little more long-term, like when you get that call, I think it was early February or yeah. mid-February, Laner goes down. Did you know you were coming up for a long time? Like, Did that help at all, or did you have no um, idea what you were coming up for? Well, they, they had wanted to sign me back in December of that year to basically the same contract I was on, which was two-way and all that stuff and they weren't really happy with my play coming into christmas in january so I, I wasn't confident that i would um be up I, it was uncertainty on how long craig would be out and all that stuff but 
I didn't rule out them going and getting someone else or trading me somewhere else. So I really didn't know what was going to happen. And I basically just put, put my work boots on and my head down. And then, as I said, I tried being the, the first one on the ice and, and last one off. And if anyone wanted to do anything, whether it was one-timers from 10 feet away from me or whatever, I was the the dumb young goalie who was willing to do anything. So um, that's kind of, I guess, my mindset leading into there. And then after a couple of weeks, it kind of, you start giving yourself confidence and you're making more saves in practice. And then um, once you get your, your first start, you feel like you're in a good spot. The origins of that run, was that, it just starts there? You had a good game, you feel good, and then it just snowballed from there? Were there things about your game at that point that you felt good about above others like were things that were clicking that hadn't in a way before because we're talking yeah. like we're talking about and i and i mean we are 40 minutes in and, I, and i'm just getting to it i didn't want to yeah. make this the focus but we're talking about yeah. one of the greatest stretches for a goaltender in nhl history like and especially to start a career like first yeah. chance to start and go on a run like that that's it's it's historic stuff so i'm curious if you remember what you know, what it was that was clicking, what it was that felt good that allowed you to stay one shot at a time for so long, at least it yeah. looked like that. Um, no, I, I and mean, I think that was truly how it was for a while, and um, I think part of it was kind of things I've touched on before is having um, an idea of what my structure was, and a big part of that was not necessarily playing deeper, but just trying to give myself a chance on everything and. Back then, um, my game wasn't the most technical and more acrobatic than anything, but um, which is funny because when you're in the moment, you think you're the most technical guy ever. And then you look at the video now, and you're like, oh my God. But um, <laughs> no, it's it, you, you get the, the base to your game and the structure. And the, the first game, I felt really good. I felt prepared. After that, I think the next two games um, – were big for my confidence because I think we played Buffalo and then Florida the next two games and I didn't feel great. I kind of felt a little nervous that I didn't have in the first game against Montreal and I had pretty good results in those two games. So I'm thinking, I'm starting thinking to myself, well, if if I'm playing this well and I don't feel good, if I can start feeling good, I could, I could really do something now. And um, that was kind of my mindset. And then when we got to California, I get, back-to-back shutouts against Anaheim and LA. And that was really kind of the turning point for me where it was my, my oh wow moment. And um, that gave me the confidence going forward where, um, I mean, LA at the time, I think they had won the cup a year or two before and they, they were the, one of the top teams in the league and to, to shut them out and, and play as well as I did, that gave me a ton of confidence. And we kind of finished off the road trip that way. And, Next thing you know, we're we're back at home and we're we're getting closer to a playoff spot and I'm feeling really good about my game and relying on that structure and the same stuff with the next shot, next save, next stop. Was it hard to maintain that as the attention? I mean, you know, play player of the month in March, ten one and one. You said shutting out the they were the defending Stanley Cup champions, the Kings would have been that year. Um mm-hmm. playing in a Canadian market, obviously we know the hype that started around the nickname. That focus, like that spotlight that's around you in this moment with all that attention and what some people might consider pressure, because you said now you're in the playoff picture. Um, yeah. How'd you manage to stay in the moment through that? Because it couldn't have been easy, especially first first run, first chance. Yeah, it, it was it was difficult at times, but honestly, like it's, it's, it's weird. And I, I think this is probably the same way for 
most guys playing in a Canadian market, like your most comfortable times are when you're at the rink. Like it's, you're not worried about going to a restaurant and someone coming up to you or the restaurant. Like when you're at the rink, you're just in your most comfortable kind of element with all guys that are just like you. And it felt like we were at the rink all the time then, which was great. But um, I was living in a hotel then and that part was a little bit harder because that meant going out to eat for dinner at restaurants all the time and all that stuff that I wasn't used to, I had to deal with. But um, as I said, when I got to the rink, it, it was, that was my, my place of comfort and all the other stuff that came along with it was uh, stuff I didn't have control over. And I think once you start to accept that there's things in life that you have control over and other things that, that truly you can't, I guess, change what happens. Um, you get into a place of comfort in your life where um, it becomes easier to accept things that maybe you might feel uh, pressure or just uncomfortable and you just learn how to deal with it. And luckily at that point, I was a little bit older and had a little bit more maturity where it wasn't the, the toughest thing for me. The attention that came with it and is at the hamburger and the, as the nickname builds up steam and, and gets more attention and there's hamburgers being chucked on the ice. You said uncomfortable. It was, you know, I got the sense talking to Curtis today. It wasn't a spotlight you a spotlight that you wanted necessarily. Um, no, I mean, I, I never grew up playing hockey to play in the NHL so that I could, uh, be the face of McDonald's in Canada or something. So it wasn't like, it, it just wasn't something that, uh, was ever on my radar. And I mean, um, it's like anyone, you ultimately you want to be remembered by, I guess, what, what you do on the ice. I, I think that ultimately is what happened. And I just happened to have a very unique nickname that is synonymous with all of that too now. Um, but yeah, it, it was uncomfortable at times. Um, the one thing that sticks out to me that I think really kind of bothered me a little bit, like I've always tried giving people the time of day if they're fans or something was in Toronto and you come off uh, or out of the hotel. And I think there was honestly probably 40 or 50 people there and they're all yelling my name for my autograph. I didn't even know there'd be people out there and I have to be on the bus in a minute. So I'm like, I can't sign anything. And you start getting booed and you suck and all this stuff. And it's a lot easier getting booed and told you suck when you're wearing gear in the middle of an arena than, when you're walking on a bus. Oh man. Yeah. That's, that's a little, that seems a little uh, unfair, but Hey, Leafs fans, right. What are they going to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The other part was, you know, as you start that, you talk about preparation. Um, you're slamming BioSteel right now to take care of your hydration while we do this interview. But yeah. it, so it sounded like as those starts piled up, like, and the record was incredible, but I think people lose track of just how much you play in a very short period of time and yeah. like how'd you manage that physically because it sounds like like that would take a toll that would take a toll playing as often as you did during that stretch without yeah. the pressure but even with the pressure how'd you manage the body and how, how did it feel by the end of that run um to be honest i mean i had uh i wasn't the best in shape person when i left college and that was a rude awakening to me when i first met with the Ottawa senators representatives and they had told me to lose X amount of weight and all this stuff. And I really dialed that stuff in, was in a really good spot. And, um, I, I was just in, in really good shape. And the only thing that really bothered me throughout that run was, um, my, my back had started hurting a little bit and that's from the soft hotel bed I was sleeping in. And the team actually had paid for a brand new mattress to get delivered. Cause at that point I was the golden child and 
nothing could could go wrong with me and it was that was almost surreal too in itself that I was in a hotel and they were getting a different mattress delivered but um for me it was I I, I don't know I had a different approach than a lot of goalies I'm more uh I lifted weights a lot more than other guys um I did all that stuff and even before the games I'd be swinging kettlebells and basically doing a mini workout and that's just what made me feel good on the ice and changed over the years a little bit but at that point um I think I still had that young man's body where it didn't really matter what I did I could kind of just show up and crack my knuckles and hop on the ice and it probably took that mentality a little bit too yeah and I mean there's games where I felt awful I was tired and adrenaline takes over a little bit and all that stuff and that's the other thing too like I, I would be lying completely if I said that adrenaline didn't play a big part in that run and as a as a kid who grew up a giant hockey fan and you see it often where guys start uh, their careers really well, there, there's so much excitement when you're going into new buildings and places you haven't played before and whether it's playing Crosby for, for the first time or Ovechkin or all these other guys or new buildings or Hockey Night in Canada, you're, 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 it's so much easier for you to find um, reasons or excuses to get up for these games, whereas the, the longer you get into your career, it just seems more monotonous, almost kind of like the same game. Oh, we're in uh, Chicago on a Tuesday night or whatever it might be. Chicago on a Tuesday night's great, but I don't want to get myself in hot water on any of the other cities that sometimes get mentioned. <laughs> um, what do you remember the last game? I think it was in Philly. Uh, and and I, if I remember correctly, like you guys got in late. Like It wasn't clinched or locked up. Or The last game heading into the playoffs... Um, what do you remember? What do you remember of the plane ride home? So that was, um, if memory serves me correct, if, if we won, we were guaranteed to be in. If we lost, we needed help. It was more or less the same kind of game we had played throughout opportunistic offense. And, um, when that horn sound sounded, it was surreal, like a lot of other things during that period of time. But, um, the, the the plane ride and this is something that you hear so much around locker rooms is guy older players always say you don't realize how fast it goes by and how precious moments like that are and at the time I didn't understand it either but um, you look back and position where I'm at now and that's truly a, a, a top three moment and we, we landed in Ottawa and I mean the the guys that are playing the league for 10, 12 years, they're saying this is one of the most fun seasons they've ever had. And you're thinking, oh, wow, like I'm so lucky this is my second year pro and all of a sudden this is happening for me. Um, but yeah, they're probably, I don't know, 400 fans waiting at the airport. Like it was truly surreal to get that, uh, I guess, arrival home and all that stuff. And then you're starting to wrap your head around the fact that you're going to be playing the playoffs and living out a, a whole new dream. I I heard that the they had a special item on the menu for that flight home too. I don't remember that. Oh. <laughs> that was to me. Laser told me there were hamburgers uh, on the plane after. So, oh. yeah. So it, so it figures it as, as, as the guy who's behind that and the guy who got so associated with it, you were the one that don't remember. So, um, what was the weirdest part of that? You mentioned the McDonald's things, and there were lots of stories written at the time. I don't remember half of them, but like the lifetime card or something like that. Um, Probably yeah. comes in more handy once you had kids than it would as a professional athlete, I'm thinking. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, there's a little bit to that story. I, I was given, I think, six gift cards by the local franchisees, McDonald's, and that would more or less be a 
McFlurry on the way home from a game or something was the only real purpose for me. But um, I think I ended up, they were, they only worked in Canada and we were living in the States and I'd given them to some friends that lived in the Ottawa area. And I still have the, the gold um, McDonald's card and a friend that they had given me, but I don't know if that works or not. So that's to be determined. And honestly, it might never be determined if it works, but uh, it looks nice on the wall and it's a good uh, talking piece. At least some people are over. Sign a contract after that year, stick with Ottawa for a couple of years. When you have that type of high, like we see, we see it even today, the game evolves yeah. constantly. Um, if you're not always evolving as a goaltender, you're falling behind. You get that contract. Yeah. You've got some security there. But walk me through, like, as things move forward, how did you continue to, what were some of the focal points as you continued to work on your game and continued to, you know, try and stick in the league and develop? Yeah, well, there's a couple parts that I, I I had uh, I felt pressure after the contract, and obviously I set lofty expectations for myself. And um, it's kind of hard who, when you when your first year first full run is a nine forty one. That's a pretty high yeah. standard to live up to. Because I look your next season, you're nine fourteen, which is a hell of a mark in this league. Yeah, and that yet, was. I mean, that was the. I think it was the exact same or point one off from what Craig had that year, and I remember it was treated as if I had basically the one of the worst seasons ever. So I, I it, it was a combination of both where I, I struggled with, um, I mean, we're a team that didn't make the playoffs that year. Was the goaltending part of that? Probably, yes. There was, the wins and losses weren't there for me. As I said, save percentages and everything. Um, I think a goalie should be ultimately judged by the wins and losses for the most part. But um, I thought I had a pretty good year and, it was disappointing for me because I'd kind of been dealing with some hip and groin stuff. And the next year I, I came in and it was fairly obvious from the start that I wasn't in the team's plans. And um, we had new coaches that following year and um, it, it happens. And just the way that whole season unfolded where I was trying to kind of play through an injury and then it just gets worse. I end up getting surgery and miss the whole year and then all of a sudden it's just a little bit awkward kind of being a part of the organization but you're both trying to kind of move on and move past and when you finally move on and into other organizations now you start getting different voices now you start getting different coaches that's something i talked to yeah. a lot of guys about um there's positives and negatives positives is sometimes you can get new ideas you haven't been introduced to before the hard part is sometimes you know knowing what your foundation is and making sure it doesn't get lost what were some of your experiences you know, as you started to move on to other teams. And, and again, you know, like hockey DB doesn't say anything, but you get into a game with the avalanche and you have a hell of a game. Like every time you got a yeah. chance, it felt like to play at the NHL level, you played really, really well. Yeah. And I mean, that was disappointing to me too. And, um, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think I was, I was always surprised as the years have gone on since then that I, I just never got another chance. And there was times where, <laughs> I was called up with Buffalo for a number of times and never got in and various teams in Minnesota and stuff where it just never happened or the stars didn't align in that way. But I always felt like when I, when I played, I, I played pretty well outside of the one season when I was basically playing hurt. Um, and I guess you could lump New Jersey last year into that as well. But that was playing hurt too. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying. So I, yeah. I would say when, when I was healthy, I, I felt like I played pretty well, but um, it, it was eye opening when I got to Colorado. Um, UC Parkula, the goalie coach, he's still there. I, I thought I worked hard. Um, it, it's a whole, whole nother thing with him. And, um, he, he's great. He, he knows what he's talking about. Awesome goalie coach. Um, 
And at the time, I think I, I had probably made a mistake in my career where after my first year, I, I felt like I, I just had to keep doing what I, what I had done. Um, I felt like I had uh, not figured it out, but what I was doing was working so well that first year that I would be silly to try and change things. And it's a fine line between changing things and evolving. And somewhere along the way, I probably lost my game a little bit there, but um, I learned a lot from him and uh, just kind of little details that maybe I hadn't got along the way before then. And then on to Iowa. And I'm guessing I was trying to do the math on who was where at that point, probably Freddie Shabbat as, as a goaltending coach with the Wild. Yep. I had Freddie Shabbat um, my first year in Iowa. And then uh, later on, I did the full year taxi squad of Minnesota and all that. And then uh, I was there the first half of last year and, and Richard Bachman uh, w- was there with me last year. What's that, what's that like, like, like some of the different voices, things that you were looking at, the games changing around you. Cause like I said, like by, by the time I see you in Montreal, the games I had watched, I was like, everything looked really, you, you talk about looking back at that, that amazing run and seeing yourself mm-hmm. as, as playing more reactionary. By the time I see you in Montreal and had watched some of those games and the success you were having, like there looked like there was a, a, a I don't say more structure because that I don't want it to have negative connotations, but the, your game no. just looked really clean and it looked like it had a good feel and structure to it. So obviously there's a path along there where you made some adjustments. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, I think Colorado was big for that. I I had never truly heard about the reverse VH or that whole thing until I got into Colorado and um, I was a guy who always went pat on post when he would teach it. And that was strictly out of, that's where my foot would land. I, I, it wasn't necessarily by design, but I felt like I could get more leverage coming off the post and everything. And we would work on it every day. We would be out there before practice, probably 30 to 40 minutes, all those goalies and Varley and Bernier would be out there as well. And it didn't matter if they played the night before I was kind of the third guy or backing up and, kind of around, but not necessarily playing. And I got a lot of work with, with UC in there and it, it's tough stuff, but um, that was kind of the start of me um, understanding that I needed a little bit more of a, a technical base to my game and couldn't just rely on trying to make saves just because I got my body in the way. Well, and I was going to say probably uh, like in terms of at least the post play and that type of modernizing of the post play, like Jonathan Bernier, revolutionized his post play in that same window. Like I remember him going from Anaheim and watching him go into a post four different ways on four different plays. He really seemed to buy into, so you would have been learning it along with him under, under UC's watch. And what's it like to, is it nice when another guy's trying to learn the same thing? No, absolutely. And, um, it was, it was, as I said before, it was, it was opening and, and how much work was involved to, I mean, you hear stories of, uh, Ian Clark and other goalie coaches who um, are under the belief that the goalie needs to be the hardest working player on the team. And UC would never talk about that, but it was kind of inferred with how much was expected of you each day. And um, sometimes it would feel crazy how much stuff we'd be doing. But um, I think the the results spoke for themselves. The team got in the playoffs and um, it was nice having a guy like, like Bernie and, and Varley too, who, I mean, when you when you're, I don't want to say going through hell, but you're going through a tough stretch. It's nice to have a guy who you can kind of uh, talk to and, and go through it together. I forgot to ask while you were in while you were in um, Ottawa. We talk about reading the game, and I'm not sure anybody reads releases like Andy does. 
uh, <laughs> in the game today. Were there, was there anything that he passed along that you, because I've talked to a lot of guys that were playing partners for him and that's, you know, whether it was Mike Condon um, or Robin Lehner sharing yeah. stories about how he read pucks off sticks. And in a lot of cases, it's like, hey, I can't do that. I can't play like that. But for some of them, there were things you could take away from it. What was that experience like for you? It it was, I mean, when you talk about making the game look easy, I, I don't know if there's a goaltender who the game's easier for him. He doesn't always make it look easy, but I truly find that I think the game is that easy for him. Um, but there, there'd be times where I, I can't say with complete conviction, but I'm fairly certain that he would do shootouts where he wouldn't even look at the, the puck. He'd be looking at the guy's eyes and because he, he would do that in practice all the time and guys could figure it out. and. He'd just be standing there and make a glove save with his peripheral vision just because he was looking where the guy was shooting and would either give him something and take it away or anything like that. And I've tried it. It doesn't work the same for me. So I, I it's a bit I of a lost start. The secret. Yeah. But it, it was, it was honestly incredible when you know, this guy's going in the net to do a shootout and he's not even looking at the puck and he's still making the saves. So that last year, uh, Montreal, as these things start to come together, these, 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 you know, different things post play. And it's funny, like we, we talk so much about post plays goalies and I think non-goalie people are like, why are they always so focused on it? But as the game in that five-year window has become so much about plays going across the middle of the ice into the corners or out of the mm-hmm. corners, it feels like as goalies, like the ability to move in and out of the post has never been more important. No, absolutely. And I think um, the more I learned how to use the post as leverage, um, I felt like it was, that was like, my, my position of comfort. And I say that in the sense that if I'm sliding on a backdoor play and I'm sliding in front of the post, if it goes back the other way, it's pretty hard to get back there. But you're sliding to the post and the guy passes it back the same way it came from. It's a little bit easier to bump off that post and you're going to have more leverage and you can kind of use your momentum that you went into the post to push off. Um, unless you're Matt Murray and you're knocking the net off, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, no, I, I just find it, it can it can be a tool if you learn how to use it and you learn how to, I guess, generate your momentum in and out of it. It can be a, a great asset, and I think it's great the evolution that you see now, and I think it, it helps a lot of the goaltenders. Now, as uh, like you said, things started great in Montreal, then the ankle injury, skate gets caught under the post, something goes pop, um, and just weren't able to sort of play at the, at, at, with the same comfort from there on as you kind of had to go through that stretch in New Jersey and, and head overseas this year to test it and it doesn't work, like what are some of the lasting memories for you? What are some of the, when you look back now at your career, um, what pops out first? Um, I would say like the, the playoff game in, in Montreal, um, the first one, and not even during the game necessarily, but um skating out for warm-up or not warm-ups for the start of the game and the towels are going crazy and all that stuff and it's the stuff you see on tv that used to give you goosebumps watching on tv and now you're living it out and that was awesome and then after kind of being out of the league for a little bit and getting the chance in, in game five against nashville i think they're the president's trophy winners and make 40 something saves and win game five like those i think the playoffs are the the ultimate test in this league and um to have success and get the opportunity most importantly to to play in those situations um those are probably the most the things i'm most grateful for and then 
getting one last kick at the can to go back to Ottawa and, and play with Montreal last year there was awesome too. Um, and in terms of what you're up to now, uh, did you consider, because you, you see the game so well, you're, you're, you sort of walk through a spectrum there where the game was changing and you changed with it. You, you've had all these different voices that you've worked with yeah. from, from Pasco and Sean to, you know, to a little more old school guy like Whammer to some modern coaches. Um, did you consider coaching? Was that ever a thought in the thought process? Like, was that something you thought about? Um, when I was playing and you're always thinking, well, what am I going to do after type thing? That yeah. was always something I considered. Um, I'm, I'm in a unique position where I, I've, I've, I've kind of got to experience every spot that a, a player in an organization might experience, whether it's being the guy for a little while, being the third or fourth guy in the American League up on a call up or not playing for a while. And all of a sudden you get put in a weird position. Um, I, I've, I've, I'll say lucky. I've been lucky to live live through that. Um, I think I'm better for that, and I have a better appreciation for all the different roles throughout an organization. Um, what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm working for BioSteel, and I get to still be around the rink and work with a lot of the equipment and strength and medical staffs, and I get to deal with them on a day-to-day basis, and um, I still feel like I'm around the game, and it doesn't feel that much different yet, but um, I'll never rule anything out down the road, and it's it's been uh I've, i i joke about being a a suitcase to an extent but the way i look at it is i've just been lucky to learn from so many different people and had so many different coaches and i I've, i'd be lying if i didn't say that I've, I've kind of stolen a little bit from everyone and um that's kind of helped shape my my view on on goaltending and hockey in general well i mean whether it's on that side or the side you're in now i think that it's it the game's better because andrew hammond stays in it so it's. It, I'm glad you found a way to sort of stay around the game and involved in the game. Um, you know, especially with all the different things, like you said, like you've you've got that background where, regardless of what a young goalie is going through, you can probably speak to it directly. And I think there's a lot of value in that. So if you ever do decide to switch to the other side, I'm sure people will be interested. Um, can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us today. As I look over at the clock, I realize it's over an hour, and I said I wouldn't be this long, and so I'm sort of famous <laughs> for this. But I apologize. Okay. Um, hopefully all the Christmas cookies have been baked while we were talking and, yeah. and you don't have to worry about the cleanup or anything like that. Uh, yeah. I can't I can't thank you enough, Andrew, for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And congratulations on a great career. And we look forward to the next chapter, whether it's BioSteel continued or whether we see you down the road or on the ice at a rink. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That is a journey right there. Andrew Hammond, oh, winding through the hockey world. 2015, though, is the star on the map, Hutch. Yeah, isn't it? What a run. Just a little context for some of the people who maybe weren't following along as well back in 2015. Um, the Ottawa Senators in late January, I think they were about 13. It might have been 14 points out of the wildcard spot in the playoffs. and. You know that old adage, if you're not in the playoffs around U.S. Thanksgiving in November, the odds of making the playoffs are very, very slim. Not many people have done it. So 14 points out in late January is uh, basically um, done and dusted. And Craig Anderson went down, I think it was with a hand injury. Robin Lehner shortly after went down with a concussion due to a collision. And so they had to turn 
to Andrew Hammond, an undrafted free agent out of college. So this isn't the young superstar that you're expecting to take the net someday. And his numbers in the American League were not earth-shattering by any stretch. And so, yeah, everybody sort of thought the season was over until Andrew Hammond went 21-2. and So only one regulation loss in 23 games, a 179 goals against average, and a 941 to drag the Ottawa Senators kicking and screaming into the playoffs. Uh, as Woody said, one of the greatest runs in um, in NHL history to drag a team into the playoffs. Do that over even a slightly larger sample size. And like what you probably get to put, if you were able to do that over 45 games, we're talking about a Vesna trophy. Like those are like historic yeah. numbers over a 23 game sample for a guy that no, nobody really knew much about coming into it. And I'm glad you had those numbers such because you're right. I assume everybody knows the Andrew Hammond story. Probably should have teased that up before the interview, but it really was a remarkable run. And as he just explained, there was a, there was, there were some ups and there were some downs beyond that. Um, but as I said, every time, Every time this guy got to the National Hockey League, like, he posted good numbers, like really good numbers. So um, you know, I was glad to see him get back towards the end. Disappointed for him in the ankle injury that ended it, but really appreciative of him spending the time to sort of walk us through that whole process. He's, he's a pretty soft-spoken guy. He's actually from my hometown, sort of out in White Rock, South Surrey area. Um, so you know, just a chance to... We talked about it for a few years, about getting on the podcast, getting on the podcast, and... Uh, I wish it was under different circumstances, but I was really happy we were able to make it happen. I got to be honest. I was really interested in the McDonald's lifetime product card. Were, were you disappointed to know that it's not being used? <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I I was really excited about knowing the update uh, or the recent status uh, of, of that card. I, I know about the 2015 thing, but the McDonald's thing, uh, that that whets my appetite. I can I can say that because I'm old. I'm not training. It's uh, and also like remember like some just the epic masks that he had back then. Yes, from from uh, I think I think his painter was was Sylvie, um, if I remember cor- correctly. Uh, Sila brush. So, uh, just yeah, like great mask, great play. He, like he went with the theme, right? The theme was the college nickname, and after it became famous and all the McDonald's stuff, he he leaned into it a little bit. So I love that, but he's not leaning into the McDonald's card, which may disappoint some people. It's funny because before I did the interview, I asked for some details from none other than Curtis Lazar, who was a yes. young center. I think it might have been his first year in the NHL. And of course, he was the guy, One after one of the games, fans were throwing McDonald's hamburgers on the ice after games. And Curtis Lazar actually picked one up and ate one on his yes. way or took a big bite out of one on his way off oh, the ice boy. to the locker room. And so obviously, Lazar's now... Uh, He's a guy we know from shooting up in Kelowna over the years and now with the Vancouver Canucks. So he shared some pretty good stories from his memories of that run as well. I remember doing highlights uh, back uh, when that happened and spot shadowing Curtis Lazar after the, the team huddle leaving the ice and picking up the uh, uh, the old hamburger and giving it a good chop. Uh, what's uh, what's happening over at the uh, ingoldmag.com website as we get set to ring in 2023, Hutch? I mean, pretty pretty quiet over the holidays, to be honest, keeping up with all the uh, gift subscriptions that are coming in, talking to people who want to know more about that in the process. So things have been just a little bit quiet over there. But as as we teased in the beginning, the biggest uh, and newest thing there is uh, the Thatcher Demko. The first pro read is up. We will have the next one coming up at the beginning of the week. So uh, if you want to dig into some of the best content around, check out ingolmag.com this week. Woody. Do you wear your Apple Watch when you go out surfing? 
I do actually. It actually has a uh, it actually has a tracker for surfing for calorie tracking when you're out there. But I'm going to be perfectly honest, guys. Haven't surfed on this trip. Uh, most of the time in the water has been spent snorkeling, maybe a little bit of body surfing at one of the beaches. But the waves are way down on my side of the island, and the other side of the island is you know not for howlies. Let's put it that way. Not for pale white beginner slash intermediate surfers it's locals only so where the waves are big enough to be worth the time uh, i am not good enough to be granted that time so uh and happen out and the uh the tour surf is uh like it's only a couple feet here so might go out one day and just cruise on a longboard but for the most part it's just been hanging with the kids and you know i saw some octopus the other day once snorkeling Uh, that was pretty cool always see sea turtles you know what i love about this place and not to rub it into anybody who hasn't been here, I apologize. But if you ever do, make sure you snorkel. Make sure you find a good snorkeling spot. Like ask somebody that knows, because it is literally like going swimming in an aquarium. It's unbelievable. So I that's I could do that all day, every day. Um. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. I more asked you about the Apple Watch because uh, if you run into a, a sharky, uh, I want to be able to to pin find my watch and be able to locate you inside somebody's belly. I'm I'm I have a phobia about sharks, and I worry about you every time you get over there. Yeah, so thanks for uh, thanks for planting that image in my head. At least until I'm down to my last two days of vacation here. I'm glad you didn't do that at the beginning, Darren, because it's actually it's actually a pretty good. Yeah, yeah, we've seen them. Let's let's put it that way. They're out there. I think those eye eye watches are incredible now. So they probably detect the shark bite and will actually phone emergency services for you, Woody. So it's a good thing you have it on. Yeah, there's uh, let's just. Let's just say that, um, yeah. Let's just let's just say that it's not something I like let's to just think stop about. It. Yeah, because yeah, you're you're planting seeds in my head. I, let's just say I've had some close encounters out here and been close enough to be nervous. So um, maybe we'll just stick to the shoreline the rest of this trip after this conversation. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Thank you. Pool's looking good. I I I know that you're you're not happy with me right now, but I'm pretty pleased with myself that I'm protecting yeah. my buddy. Let's just hope you're not the guy that that yelled shut out at the end of a game, eh? I've done that before too, just to see the reaction on social media. I do, I do, and that's my other side of me. That's a poker, a picker, a prodder. Uh, thanks to Andrew Hammond. Thanks to Cam Matwip. Uh, thanks to you for listening. Uh, awesome uh, episode to end 2022 with, and can't wait to uh, go on this journey with our 200th episode that's coming up. And we have that great, great big interview. I'm not going to mention it just yet. Am I allowed to mention it? No, 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 I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, not going to do it just yet. Uh, we'll see you in 2023 on In Goal Radio, the podcast brought to you by The Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com and Source for Sports Langley. <laughs>